Welcome to another episode of The Goods, a film podcast. And I believe that this is a special episode. I believe that all of our episodes are special episodes. But I believe that this is an especially special episode. Because we have a guest on to join us today. And not only do we have a guest, but it's a Violent Ends episode. Which means we're going to be talking two movies in our favorite special episode format. Violent Ends, and the guest that we have is someone who's been here before, multiple times, and that is my brother, Will. How you doing, Brian? We'll let Will speak in a second. First, Brian, since Brian's a, a, a main host, always a spot of honor. Hey, Dan. Good to be here in my honored spot. This is, what, 150 Six, I think. I think so. Lots of episodes. Welcome, Will. Thank you guys for having me. I think this is my fifth time on the pod, so it's always glad to be back. I guess you can have me about one time every 30 episodes is what the listeners can look forward to. The math checks out. Does that include when we talked about Pops Ghostly and Uh, The Undertaker or whatever his name is? I suppose this is my sixth appearance then. Uh, if you include the uh, VHS board game night, which I what, suppose I was a guest on. What's that guy's name? The Gatekeeper? No. The, the Gatekeeper, yeah. The, was no, it the Gatekeeper? It? The Grave Master? It was the Gatekeeper. Gatekeeper. Great dude. Which The one hour we spent with him. And he reminded Dan that he is closest to death <laughs> as the <laughs> oldest. As the oldest. <laughs> the oldest. <laughs> the one we all pity. <laughs> <laughs> Often I'm the one that we all pity when we're in a room together. So I mentioned that this is a Violent Ends episode. This is an episode format that Brian pioneered for us back in like, what, the fourth episode ever of the podcast, Brian? Something like that. That sounds about right. And the premise is that we take two films that have similar premises, similar setups, but very different tones or very different executions or very different endings. And typically one of them ends happy and one of them ends not so happy. So we talked about Disney's bears versus Grizzly Man. One of them ended up with a person getting consumed by a bear. And one of them ended with a friendly cub getting his salmon. I guess something else still eaten by a bear, but tonally quite different. Right. More hands off by the humans in that film. That's true. I guess more hands off by the bears as well. <laughs> hands off is an important theme in Yojimbo too, as we'll talk about here in a second. But my brother Will, what, you know what, Will, you talk. First of all, you say hi, Will. We haven't even let you say hi yet. Yeah, I, I said a couple things, but yeah, hi. It's good to be back. 
So would you like me to introduce the premise for today's Violent Ends? Sure. What are what movies are we talking about? Well, the two films we're going to be discussing today are mm-hmm. Support Your Local Sheriff, a 1969 comedy sort of spoof parody western, and Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, which is a 1961 samurai film, one of his sort of within his canon of classics. And it, certainly there is some connective tissue here because Yojimbo famously inspired uh, A Fistful of Dollars, which is the big pioneer of the spaghetti western genre. But yeah, so there's some overlap as far as um, tone, uh, as far as content, but when we look at the premise, I think you'll find that there is a lot in common and drastically a lot different towards the end. This is a pairing that's got tendrils, because as you said, Yojimbo inspired the Man With No Name movies with Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone. Is it Leone or Leone? I always said Leone, but I would I don't not know. be I've heard it both if ways. it was Leone. I've heard it both ways. Also, of course, composer Ennio Morricone or Morricone. Yeah. <laughs> One of the greats. And uh, Will, I think you said his, but I don't know if you said who his was. But the director of Yojimbo is Akira Kurosawa, the legendary Japanese director. So... Support Your Local Sheriff um, was an independent film produced by its star, James Garner, or at least co-produced by him. Um, he's not listed among the producers, but I think he's, this was like the first film from some uh, production company he made. Yeah, the title card said Cherokee Films or something. I was like, well, I've never seen that before. And I think you only saw it one other time. I could be wrong on that, but we'll talk about that in the, the tendrils and I would go one step further on the the connection, the tendrils between them, because so Yojimbo inspired the Leone films. And then I think Support Your Local Sheriff is basically taking the tropes, if not directly parodying the Sergio Leone films. And in fact, it gets a shout out in the second uh, Support Your Local film. Um, so in some ways, it's like, I'm trying to think, what's the metaphor? It's like you've processed through two filters, so you can't even really like necessarily call it directly inspired from the first thing. But like it, it had to go from Kurosawa to Leone to support your local sheriff. So we're like two layers removed of inspiration there. Right. And just because you kind of got there, two years after support your local sheriff, the same director... And the same actors made a movie called Support Your Local Gunfighter. I have never encountered a case like this where they just decide, let's make the same movie again. And there's there's definitely differences in the plot, differences in the tone. The characters are not the same characters, but very strange. Yeah, it's like the same cast playing in similar types. It's not exactly the same cast, but it has like three or four overlaps, including important roles. Like the star is the same, playing a very similar type of character. The sidekick is the same. Similar type character. The mayor and like the town elders are the same. The love interests are both named after virtues, prudence, and patience. Oh, I didn't even make that connection, but you're right. But so you say you've never seen this before, Brian. I actually think, although the the Man With No Name trilogy is sort of discussed and billed as a trilogy. If you look at them, I'm pretty sure Clint Eastwood's character has a different name in all three movies. 
and they the villain of the first movie is also the villain or is the same actor plays the villain in the second movie and the sort of the sidekick or the buddy cop in the second movie plays the villain in the third movie so there's definitely a lot of uh, overlap in the cast of the Sergio Leone movies as well so if i have seen any of the man with no name movies it's not more than one of them and are you telling me that in the man with no name movies the man has a name Okay, I want to tell this story because I was I opened it up on Letterboxd. I think it was Letterboxd, and I pulled up the first one, which is A Fistful of Dollars. And I was like, oh, there's Clint Eastwood. I'm going to hover over Clint Eastwood. He's on the browser. If you hover over who it is, it says the name of the character. The, hover over the actor's name, it says the name of the character. And I was like, it's going to say the man with no name. And I hovered over it, and it said Joe. And I was like, this is this is <laughs> falsehood. I was told this was man with no name, but he's got a boring-ass name like Joe. Yeah, I think he's... I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to not have a name either if I was just Joe. <laughs> yeah, I think he's... Angel Eyes in one of them, and Blondie maybe in another one, which is dubious because I don't think of Clint Eastwood as a blonde man. His hair is like sandy colored at best, but yeah. Well, way to just alienate our entire Joe demographic, Dan. <laughs> All the Joes just turned off. It's Jover. There is a Joe in um, Support Your Local Sheriff. I wonder if that name was inspired by Clint Eastwood's character. So why don't we talk about what makes these movies similar? And we're going to... I think we'll talk about the extended universes of these movies to some extent, but let's let's keep a laser on our on our main two subjects at least for now. So, what ties these movies together? So, both movies take place in a small town that's only beginning to feel the force of the industrial revolution and capitalism. In the case of Sporty Local Sheriff, it's an old west town, and in the case of Yojimbo, it's like a rural Japanese town. I don't know what you call this type of town. In both towns, there is a sort of government leading the town, but it's a corrupt and cowardly government that basically has resulted in crime being the de facto ruling order of the town. And the town populace lives in constant fear of the criminal enterprise that runs it. Um, the surviving businesses in these towns are a brothel, and a boozing saloon of sorts. It's kind of an old west saloon and support your local sheriff and a sake house type cafe type place in Yojimbo. And that's kind of the, the setting. And the movie opens with a man whom we will shortly learn is a total badass and also has a mysterious past wandering into town and witnessing the trouble firsthand. Mainly, he's in town because he's just wandering through and he wants a good bite to eat and to maybe relax for a little. But when he sees the state of chaos that the town is in, he decides to do something about it. With no real incentive, like no one thing that he's trying for, except maybe a little bit of money and maybe a sense of justice, but not really a sense of righteousness to go with the justice. Sort of an aloofness about this man that has wandered into town. Gradually, this man comes up with a plot to affect change in the town that involves a little bit of muscle and like being a quick shot type guy, but mostly is going to achieve it with cleverness and manipulating the criminals that are in charge of the town with schemes. And like I said, one important bit of this is, is the man who's wandered into town 
always is carrying an air of being smarter and better and cleverer than everyone else in the town. It actually makes me think in both cases of like the, the trickster archetype that you see throughout stories, throughout all cultures. Anyways, both stories ultimately result in the man toppling the criminal enterprise and freeing the city from the reign of terror of these, these criminals running the city. So the fact that you can use the outline I just described for both movies, that is a pretty similar plot, but it's also a lot of those things are just Western tropes or like, uh, I guess if you're like, like we said, doing filtering one movie to another movie to another movie, there's a lot of carryover there, but they, they really are pretty similar outlines. But I think as we'll see a lot of differentiation in tone and in particularly the way that the ending hit, very, very different. So Will, did I basically hit on like the connections that you saw between them? What are some of the other things that drew you to Yojimbo and support your local sheriff as a package together? Yeah, I mean, a lot. you hit a lot of the core premise ideas, but even if you look at a scene by scene comparison, there's a lot of things that overlap from the way he gets the town and sort of sees what's going on before inserting himself into the uh, conflict and also in about two thirds of the way through both of them, there's a long montage of the town getting better or getting worse and just sort of the whole um, he's just on his way through to Australia or to wherever, wherever he's going. It just feels they almost feel like mirror images of each other or two sides of the same coin where one is a very sort of uplifting kind of slapsticky version and the other one's like a antihero, almost nihilistic version of the same story. And so there's a lot of scene overlap as well as premise, I think. Another scene that was the same is early on, once the guy, the central badass wanderer, pisses off the criminals, they start hiring hitmen to come after him, and he keeps finishing off the hitmen. Yeah, another thing is the core villains of Yojimbo are sort of one of the families of the Yakuza or the gamblers or whatever you want to talk about. And in the same way, and support your local sheriff, you've got the sort of... Uh, bandits the the bandit i don't know what you call them in the west the sort of outlaws family as well so there's there's definitely uh, i think a lot of you said it's a lot of western tropes but even more than that i think these movies have a lot in common more than most uh westerns would if you just looked at uh looked at them point by point and i did go ahead and watch the support your local gunfighter and i actually saw even more yojimbo similarities in that one because it's two gangs of criminals. Well, uh, not criminals per se. Like, so there's one mine in Support Your Local Sheriff, and there's two rival mines in Support Your Local Gunfighter. And both of the mines are like trying to get the loyalties of James Garner. Yeah. Although I think Support Your Local Gunfighter is probably more of a response to the Ojimbo. I actually think for the point of a violent ends comparison, support your local sheriff has uh, more overlap when you look at it. But yeah, there's definitely aspects that are more similar between support your local gunfighter and Yojimbo than support your local sheriff. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like Brian said, the second one, support your local gunfighter. It's almost like they tried it again. It's not like a sequel. It's not like a spinoff. It's like they tried it again where it has like 40% overlap with support your local sheriff and maybe even more than that. And the second one, support your local gunfighter, I would suspect is very much directly a 
parody of Fistful of Dollars, which is, of course, an almost direct remake of Yojimbo. Yeah, and so support your local sheriff. Like Brian said, you've just got the one group. So it's not like two groups that he's plotting against each other. It's just one family that runs the town. And there's some explanation for it. They like own some property or something. The Is it the Danbys? Is that yeah, what the Danbys, they own the, the, the entire valley, which basically cuts off their trade route for where they want to sell the gold. Right. So it's like they're taking a toll. Yeah, they take a 20% toll and they said, if you don't pay the toll, then they'll just steal everything or something like that. So if we talk about the details of these, Will, do you have a designated order you want to talk about them? Um, I think either order is fine. Perhaps we should talk about Yojimbo first because it was the earlier movie. And I think there's more of an argument to be made that Support Your Local Sheriff is somewhat of a response to the type of movie that Yojimbo is. Brian, what order did you watch then? I watched Support Your Local Sheriff first. Uh, I could talk in either order, but did you want to mention your guys' connection to Support Your Local Sheriff? Sure. So this is another important reason we picked the movie. Well, actually, I, I kind of want to hear Will's perspective on it, but uh, my dad always claimed that Support Your Local Sheriff was his favorite movie and that Support Your Local Gunfighter was his second favorite movie. I'm not sure how true that actually is, but that's what he said. Um, I think my grandfather also liked it. And of course, my dad passed away over the summer, as we talked about in our Parenthood episode uh, a month or two ago. But Will, can you you want to expand a little bit on why you picked this? Yeah. Um, the I, dad connection? Yeah, it's a very similar. But I think as early as maybe September. So our dad passed away in July. And I think as early as September, I floated the idea to Dan of doing an episode about support your local sheriff. And then... I got more into watching movies uh, in like October, November. I started watching a movie almost every day. And because of my, for anybody who has listened to my past episodes, I lived in Japan for six years. So I have a, a strong connection to Japanese culture. And because of that, I started going through a couple of uh, the canonical Japanese flicks, including a lot of Kurosawa movies. And one of them near the top of the list is Yojimbo. And so when I watched that, I was like, huh, this is, in many ways, the same thing as uh, support your local sheriff, but from a uh, obviously a very different uh, tone and perspective. So because of that, and obviously I've listened to every episode of the pod, I like to try and do something different for uh, each of my appearances here. So for this one, I was like, let's try and do a violent ends thing. And I think these two worked as a pretty good companion piece. So it was a combination of several things. My personal connection to Japan, obviously our family connection to uh, support your local sheriff. And then my way of trying to go for uh, Brian's interesting episode concept in Violent Ends. Yes, good to have uh, Violent Ends for the first time in a while. Listeners, we would have more if we had more ideas. <laughs> so feel free to sound off if something clicks for you. When we talk about Sporty Local Sheriff, one piece of it is that my dad had like five quotes from the movie that he said a lot. And I'll bring up a couple of those when we talk about it. And one funny thing I've noticed, this is the second time I've watched it since my father passed away, is that he, my dad would get the quotes kind of wrong. So you know how that is. Like there's, you, you see something and then you get it in your head one way and then you say it that way a whole bunch of times and you go back and watch it. But the way that you said it is wrong, but you've already been saying it the wrong way for so long. You just got to keep saying it the wrong way. 
Like I, I definitely have some of those uh, office episodes. I would go back and watch them and realize I'd been quoting them wrong back when I used to quote the office even more than I do these days. Anyways. Um, so yeah, sure. We can talk about your, your Jimbo first a little bit here. We don't need to necessarily do an extensive blow by blow considering we already did the, the high level, but the samurai in this case, the, the wandering man whose name we don't learn except for the fact that he gives himself a sort of ironic name is played by, you'd say Toshiro Mifune is probably fine for an uh, American pronunciation. Toshiro Mifune. There you go, yeah. And He's, maybe we can start by saying what Kurosawa movies have we seen leading into this? So I've seen uh, back when I was like in college, when I did a binge of a whole bunch of movies on the IMDb Top 250, I saw uh, Rashomon. But I think that's the only one that I had ever seen prior to this week. Wait, did Kurosawa do Rashomon? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I thought this was baby's first Kurosawa for me, but I have seen Rashomon. I had the opportunity last semester in the world film history class. They screened Ran, and I was going to go to that. And then I read my syllabus. It said it was more than three hours long, and I said, I'm going to go home. <laughs> uh, yeah, Seven Samurais is probably his most iconic. And that one's like four hours long, which is why I haven't seen it. Yeah. If only it had Jonas Mankus doing asthma into the mic, then I would go watch that one. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um. So I have seen, I've seen Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and I have seen Throne of Blood, which was his Macbeth adaptation. Um, and I've seen High and Low, which is the only non-period piece. In Japanese, they call him Jidai Geki. It's not, it's not a samurai flick. Um, and then now I've seen Sanjiro and Yojimbo. Although I had seen Yojimbo before this, uh, Sanjiro, this, Sanjiro? Yeah, that's, that's one. the sequel. Right. Yeah, yeah. Is it Sanjuro or Sanjiro? Sanjuro. Sanjuro. Right? Yeah, Sanjuro. It's, at least in English it's spelled S-A-N-J-U-R-O for the Anyway, sequel. yeah, so Yojimbo, I guess I've seen five or six then. So Sanjiro, Yojimbo, Seven Samurai, High and Low, and Rashomon. I think that's it. One thing to know about Yojimbo is it's kind of an elegant premise. Man walks into town, cleans up the town, leaves... But it's also kind of confusing. There's a lot of characters in this. Did you guys get that impression too? Yeah. So in the Sergio Leone remake, uh, in Yojimbo, there's layers. There's like the people on top who are controlling the gangs. And then there's our nameless man in the middle. They get rid of the people on top in the remake. They cut out like the mayor and the silk guy and the sake brewer. It's just the two criminal families. So I think that simplifies things quite a bit. Because there's a little bit like, it's like, wait, who's in charge of who? And these characters have similar names and there's two families. But what's really like, it's definitely confusing how many uh, names get thrown around, especially if you're unfamiliar with Japanese names. Right. I was getting mixed up because and well, I thought that maybe there was some intentional symmetry, like make this side the same as that side. But I think one side has a Takimon and one side has a Tanzimon. And they're both, like, pretty prominent. And there's a lot of conversation of, like, the girl that was taken by Tanzimon. But also, there's a lot of people in samurai clothes, including, like, they got the top knot on their head and the robes. And so, yeah, it was kind of a shell game for me. There were definitely some distinctive faces. It's also a black and white film, so normally I'll use, like, the colors of their outfits to distinguish yeah. if I can't 
See, but they're all men in gray garb, gray men in gray garbs with black hair. So I like it when they Power Ranger the characters. That's how you know, like if if one character or one like faction always wears the same color, that appeals to me. Someone who's not good at keeping track of a lot of different names. Um, but it, I I counted eighteen different characters listed in the Wikipedia summary. So that's a lot of characters, but. Like like Brian said, uh, some of that comes from the fact that you have these two kind of uh, sides that have to kind of have matching bits. And as Will said, they kind of have a structure to it, too. And we kind of get a little bit of all of them and how they kind of interrelate, which I think is thematically important that they're all in some ways the same and everyone is just a selfish human basically yeah i was gonna say it doesn't really matter which of the random criminal families he's working at for this stretch of five minutes because it switches so frequently and also they're basically the same they're all scumbags it's just like which scumbag is he working for at the moment yeah that's an important point that will just made is that sandro the mifune character keeps switching sides so and he's playing the two sides against each other so things like keep getting revealed and new people keep getting introduced and he's going back and forth and it felt very film noir to me. And then I was reading about it and it said that Kurosawa even said he was influenced by film noir. Mm. That's cool. Like there was a specific book, even a, a hard boiled detective book that they were even talking about it in the discord earlier today. We actually leaked that we were talking about Yojimbo next you guys are starting to pick up the breadcrumbs, you know, follow what we're watching on Letterboxd and you'll know early. So, Yeah, I rated uh, Sanjiro on Letterboxd today and somebody in the Discord was like, I guess you're watching this movie tonight because Will rated it on Letterboxd. And the Mifune character, he, he, he wanders into town. He gets like, like we talked about. And at some point, somebody asks him his name. And he looks out the window and he sees a mulberry field. And that's how he comes up with the name Sanjuro. And there's a first half of that too. And apparently, according to Wikipedia, this is Japanese for mulberry field. And the subtitles also kind of say that. But then they also just call him Sanjuro too. So it's like a Peter in the Bible thing where the word Peter is actually just rock, if you see it in some translations. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In some languages, the Peter and the rock are the same, which has a nice poetry to it. But here, they do Sanjuro, but also he's Mulberry Field. But anyways, is there another layer to this name, Will, that's Mulberry Field? Uh, like 30 years old or yeah, something? Yeah, he's Sanjuro. San is three, so he, and Jew is 10. So he's like, I'm Mulberry Field 30-year-old. But, <laughs> but I think he even says, but I'm about to be 40. So it's like a, it's a joke, and okay. it's it's obvious that he's not actually telling them their real name, but they're like, they're like, are you serious? He's like, yep, I'm Sandro Mulberry Field, although I'm almost forty. I think you should set your dating profile to. My name is uh, Mulberry Field, thirty years old. <laughs> <laughs> the hell is this guy? <laughs> Though I'm almost forty. <laughs> so I think you you just hit on something, Will, that we haven't said yet. This film is dark and violent and a lot of backstabbing and murder. It's also really funny. I laughed like 10 times at least, maybe more than that. It's funny on a macro level because it's just full of like black irony of like everybody is 
so petty against everyone else, which kind of makes them all the same. And the only way to like, whenever you try to do something good, you end up killing five more people. So it doesn't end up being good, but it's also funny in micro level. There's just like funny things that happen. Like we were maybe five minutes into the movie when this dog walks out chomping on this severed hand. And I, I made me laugh really hard because it's kind of like a comic timing to it. He's like walking in town and all of a sudden this dog comes out with a hand and I don't know. There's just a lot of like decent jokes here, but it's not jokey, but it's still making me laugh a lot. So, yeah. And there's like a lot of the tone and the direction, like when the two gangs are facing off against each other, how they're both like really cowardly and the Sanjiro is literally standing over them, like laughing at them while they're doing stuff. And then at one point he overhears people talking about killing him and he like sticks out his tongue at the people who he's listening to the conversation with. It's definitely, there's a lot of like charm and sort of uh, lightheartedness within the bleaker uh, plot that keeps the picture as a whole elevated from a lot of the sort of more, more morbid nihilistic tone that it could have adopted. Also, Mifune can just slash through like an entire crowd so that by the end it was, I was expecting it. And it was almost like a punchline that he's chopping his way through the crowd and the people at the back of the crowd just have to wait as he's like, you know, shuffling along towards them. And they just got to wait their turn to get slashed. That threw me off exactly one time because he seems almost invincible for most of the movie. It's like people don't really suspect him. They kind of trust him. And then when they start to catch on to him, he just slashes through them. And then there's one scene, maybe three quarters of the way through the movie or two thirds of the way through the movie, where finally one of the sides is catching on to what he's doing and they go and approach him. And then it's smash cuts to him being beat to a pulp on the ground. So that also made me laugh a little, too, because now we went from assuming that he's always going to win to now he's bloodied on the ground. But I also was baffled how he got finally beat, I guess, because they have this one muscle guy who's like seven feet tall. So one thing that's interesting about this is it is a samurai movie where one of the principal villains prominently uses a gun. And uh, that's like a big thing. Um, so the guy with the gun sticks him up in the restaurant that he's chilling in. And uh, that's how he gets his uh, butt whooped. Right. The giant in this movie is awesome. He's, he's clearly got Marfan's syndrome or something, but... He's got to be over seven feet tall. Like, the guy was absolutely massive. Yeah, he's like Richard Keel. Uh, he... I, I said last episode when we were talking UHF that a dwarf has a built-in showbiz career opportunity. Same thing if you have uh, Marfans. What, what he looks like is if you've ever seen Rondo Hatton, pictures of Rondo Hatton from back in the day. This guy looks like a Japanese Rondo Hatton. Yeah, a lot of great like faces and um, like the, the dumb brother has re a really good with the big monobrow. Oh, yeah. He's like really goofy. Yeah, so there's a, a surprising amount of goofiness in this movie, I think. But there is darkness, too. And the one thing that's really interesting about the plotting is it starts kind of slow because there's the premise is basically the gangs are warring. And immediately, Sandro is like, all right, these guys are all idiots. I'm just going to get them all out in the public together and they'll slaughter each other. But they're just about to do that. But then like a government official comes in. And so he's like, oh, damn, I got to work hard to figure out how to beat these guys. And then the government official stays around for a while and then he finally leaves. And at that point, we're almost like halfway into the movie. So it does take a while to get going, although there's still good stuff in that first half. But then things start going kind of crazy in the second half, too. Just a lot, a lot of uh, 
twists here and there. Yeah, and then about three quarters of the way into the movie, shit really hits the fan, and there's like this montage of chaos where stuff is burning and being cut up, and uh, everything yeah. gets worse. Right, because he keeps tricking people that, oh, they got me, and oh, but I'm really on your side. And then he like goes to the other group. He's like, oh, they got me, but now I'm really on your side. And then each time it's like, oh, we stabbed the big sake barrels. Or there was one prop, I can't remember if it was in this one or Sanjuro, where like it really rained down like lots beans. of stuff. It's beans like dry, it dry legumes. Like because they're they, they have a woman kidnapped and there's like seven guards and he go, shows up and he's like, hey, they killed all the guards. And then the guy's like, what? I'll go tell my brother. And then after he leaves, he kills all the guards and tears up the house. Yeah, he like cuts open. He like destroys this house, breaking a whole bunch of stuff and cutting open a bamboo tarp. Yeah. What really stuck out to me in this movie is how true to what I've come to learn about Japan, that like all the houses are made of paper. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it's my cultural proclivity showing, but I just feel like you shouldn't be able to chop apart a house with a sword. <laughs> like, if you can walk in and chop the house apart and, like, slash the roof down, I, I think you need different building materials. I, did, have they read The Three Little Pigs? Another thing that always catches my eye is that the standard is sitting on the floor, not on a chair. So everybody's always down on the ground. And you see this in Japanese picture books too, which we have a decent amount of. There's all like the tables on the floor, they like lounge and eat on the floor. They sit crisscross applesauce, eat on the floor. Yeah, I, I can give a little bit of context to some of those. First of all, if you ever go to a, like go to Japan and you go to some famous building, they'll have like a plaque of the history. Almost all these buildings have like four and then it burned down somewhere in the history <laughs> because they're all made out of like flimsy materials. <laughs> Yeah, and so for being on the floor, yeah, when I was in Japan, my I sat on the floor mostly. I had like a little chair on the floor that I sat under a table. But the flooring in Japan is usually, or at least traditionally, is tatami mat, which is like kind of cushioned as well. So it works a little bit better for floor sitting. But yeah, it's, it's just, a, and almost all the traditional houses are a little bit elevated. I think if I'm guessing why, it's because Japan has a pronounced rainy season in the summer. Hmm. Um, for a few weeks where it gets a lot of rain. So I guess that might have something to do with it. It certainly has a very unique architecture and uh, lifestyle that uh, manifests itself in interesting stylistic ways. Yeah, one thing I really liked about this movie, I mean, it's kind of peak Kurosawa, maybe not like peak innovation, but just a man totally in control of his craft. Everything about this movie looks terrific. The black and white cinematography is is very good. I was really struck by just how good the direction is, like the blocking of the characters is always so pleasing within a frame and always like reflects what's going on with those characters and what they're talking about and how they relate to each other. Uh, really terrific craft and lots and lots of cool design of looking out through buildings or into buildings, like through slats in the buildings and windows and stuff. I think Sanjuro, the second one, does even more of that. And that one kind of has a thematic purpose, which we can talk about in a bit. But here it's just kind of cool how like they're always like looking out of windows and you can like he'll slide it open and you can see perfectly what's going on outside the, the window and stuff. It's almost got this, this kind of old fashioned town, very rural, no electricity, 
kind of everything's dusty. There's always dust kicking up. Everything's kind of beat up. The buildings are falling apart. It's almost got an apocalyptic vibe to it, like a minimal apocalyptic vibe, kind of. I can feel that with the uh, like the state of the town. It definitely feels like it's in uh, like it's like desolate. So let's talk about how this movie ends, and then maybe we can bring up a few specific moments or thoughts before we go to the next one. So this movie ends with basically a big showdown, and it, it revolves around this woman who is like the mistress of one of the bosses or one of the boss's brothers or something like that. So basically, here's the woman was married to one of the villagers. However... One of the top bosses, so not the gang guys, the guy who's sponsoring the gang, like falls in love with her and forces the gang, or and the gang, in order to win the favor of the top boss, kidnap kidnaps the woman, imprisons her for him. So it's the wife of a random villager who has been taken against her will to be the mistress of one of the top bosses. And then she is, after she is kidnapped, Sanjuro breaks her out and blames the breaking out on the other gang, and it uh, sort of results in this cataclysmic uh, downfall of both of the gangs. You get some cool slow motion walking towards each other that, again, Sergio Leone very much ripped with, like, the Mexican standoff. But they're just, like, slow-mo with their samurai swords sticking up, getting ready to slice at each other. And they keep doing this pose. I kept noticing it over and over where they walk with their, like, arms tucked into their sleeves. So, like... You kind of see their shoulders, but their sleeves are flapping in the wind and their swords kind of poking out from their shirt. Yeah, and it's not only like a lineup of people. It's just Sanjuro. And then on the other side, it's like 12 of the the samurai, or the, uh, the offending gamblers. And he's just going swinging and crazy <laughs> and then like chasing after specific ones. Of it's them. really not artful the way he kills them. <laughs> That's what that's the bit that I was talking about that made me laugh is especially that fight at the end where it was yeah almost silly and yet still I wouldn't want him to be chasing after me with a samurai sword. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, a boy like chasing around his younger brother with a plastic lightsaber <laughs> and whacking him. <laughs> yeah. And I would call it a katana but I will say that at one point I bought a curved Japanese sword from Goodwill and I posted on Facebook that I bought a katana and then my mall ninja sword dork friends were saying that's not a katana it's a nodachi <laughs> so maybe that's what they got in this movie I don't know but to me it's a katana but there's actually a pretty brutal death for the guy with the gun he like stabs him through the wrist with a knife and then he bleeds out slowly on the ground it's, mm -hmm. it's actually for a movie that has so many sword cuts that result in no blood anywhere no actual cuts um it's it's pretty visceral yeah that's another thing is for all the murders that go on here it does clever camera work so that you get the sense that someone's killed but you don't see like gore effects like a blade girl going through skin it's like a swinging blade and then the person falls over and you're like, oh, okay, you got, that's what happened, yeah. A couple of them get whacked about the head and they get a little blood spray. Yeah, I think there's... There's a dude walking around with an oversized mallet. And I wanted <laughs> a mallet scene. It's giant. It's like, uh, it's it's not only is it, is it a dude, it's the dude. The big guy has... <laughs> oh, even, dude he's is. got the giant uh, hammer as well. Yeah, so. We needed that showdown. Yeah. That, um, 
makes me think of the Simpsons when they have the Yakuza fight in their front yard. He's like, oh, the little guy hasn't done anything yet. And you know it's going to be good. And then he goes inside and you hear him start flying around. <laughs> so so just, that was me with the, the big guy with the, the mallet. I was like, he's, he hasn't done anything yet. He's going to do it. But yeah. Just I was going to say, in the subtitles, it calls them gamblers a lot. I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure that's Yakuza because... The origin of the word Yakuza is the worst, like, hand in a card game, I think, or, like, the worst dice roll in a game, where I think Ya means four and Ku means nine. I don't, I don't know what the Za means. But, um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure this whole emphasis on gamblers or, like, gangs, I guess. Right. Gambling debt was an important thing here. It's interesting. Gambling actually appears in Support Your Local Gunfighter. I don't think it's in Support Your Local Sheriff, but... That, I think that's like a big part of the lawlessness of this is like your fates come and go on a whim and you can lose it all in a second. Yeah, I also think gambling in a lot of places for a long time was illegal or mm. highly regulated. So, I mean, even now you can't like you can have a $20 hand to poker with your friends, but you can't just open a casino in your basement. And then the very last thing that happens in the movie is another dark twist that just kind of sends the movie off in a... I don't know. We could talk about how it sends the movie off, actually. So one of I think he's one of the head bosses, like one of the guys who claims to be the mayor of the town or something. He comes out. He's dressed as a samurai, all goofy. He's got a drum and he's banging the bongo drum with a crazy look in his eyes. And then he goes and then he kills one of the villagers who has been one of the key figures about uh, like supporting Sanjuro. Um, wait, wait. Is that who it is? No, he. I'm pretty sure. Who does he kill? It's, so there's the two top bosses, and I think does he the kill one, the other t- top the, boss? Because the, the, there's the sake brewer and the silk salesman. I think the silk salesman, who's the mayor, goes insane and kills the sake brewer. Okay, so it's the two top guys. Okay, but the old guy stays alive to the end, right? The old guy he's friends with. Yeah, the the restaurant guy it has the really funny pan where it cuts in. You're like, oh no, he's been hanged, and then it pans up. And he's like hanging grouchily. He's been like tied up, like hog tied. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. Okay, that makes a little more sense then, because I was like, man, the guy I liked, he got killed at the end, but it wasn't him. It was still, else. yeah, he st- he he lives through it. He's the guy who Sandro tells the town has been cleaned up, and then he leaves. Right. Okay. <laughs> and doesn't he like he? I think isn't the old guy the one who's tied up at the end and. Uh, Sanjiro does the anime sword slash, and you think somebody's hurt, but then the ropes just fall away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to repeat what Will just said there, because I think this is actually kind of the key to the end of the movie, is Sanjiro says, well, did it. I cleaned out the city, (laughs) fixed your problems, and he walks out of town, this huge pile of corpses behind him, crazy man in a samurai suit banging on a drum as mayor. We did it, Patrick. We saved the city. What one of the funniest lines in the movie is when there's this like sort of sniveling constable guy who tries to get him to work for the other people. And then at the end of the movie, Sandro calls him. He says, hey, constable. And he says, yes, what is it? He says, go hang yourself. And then he turns and leaves. It's uh, it's very uh, sort of dark, but uh, satisfying in a way. So a lot of deaths. Then Sandro, the mysterious man wanders out of town leaving the the pile of bodies and the town arguably an even worse state than it was so that's kind of dark but i kind of wanted to see what did you, what thoughts you guys had like what's the takeaway because it feels to me as if 
there is a commentary aspect to this. So I wanted to see what you guys think, and then I'll give you my take on this. It definitely is very dark, but it's like, it's kind of like a, he excised the demon and there's uh, scorched earth behind him, but he did what he said he was going to do and the, the evil people have been slain while he wanders off to not really deal with the problem. There's definitely an element of commentary there. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat that I don't know that any one faction stood in for a real world group or other, other than he's like the wandering justice. He's he's like Jack Reacher, by which I mean probably Jack Reacher is like Sanjiro. <laughs> but he's the guy who drifts through and he's going to have a different adventure next week and he's going to spread this vigilanteism. But the the good the good guys are going to get saved and the bad guys are going to be put to the sword. I guess I didn't necessarily mean like a political uh stand-in type commentary, but it felt to me like almost a deconstruction of this kind of hero because it's interesting because if this was like the 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 template that american westerns were heavily or i guess italian westerns as it were were heavily inspired by it this one already feels like a deconstruction of those tropes where you have uh, the one guy who comes in as the superhero does a whole bunch of violence to try and save the day and then walks away but like it's really like an anti-violence, but even more so it had to me like an anti-capitalist bent because like all of this built up rot was from these two businesses that as we saw were basically just the same being petty with each other. And he, he painfully tore it down, which, you know, in the one hand was heroic, but on the other hand, like just tearing a system down doesn't solve the problems. He, that you, you don't have a rebuilt solution just by tearing down the bad things. So to me, it was it was kind of a weird blend of like you can make change, but also like going in and breaking things. I don't know, like a cynicism that people who try to affect change in the world sometimes end up making things worse or, or something along those lines. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Not fully convinced by the anti-capitalist thing it's certainly anti-materialist and anti-greed among other things because there's the whole uh, a recurring theme is people throwing money at him and him turning them down throughout the uh movie it's like or he'll take the money and then give it back because he's annoyed at them and one of the whole things is he hates a lot of the gangsters because they are kind of fake right they pretend to be these super badass outlaws but in reality they're all like cowards and stuff like that this had some of an issue that we discussed in one of our many Christmas Carol episodes where there's a lot of discussion of amounts of money in a foreign currency <laughs> like 200 years ago. And so there's just no frame of reference for a contemporary American. It's like, how much is one Rio versus 30 Rio? And he's like, 15. And everybody's like, oh. and I was like, I, there's no amount of money where if you say it's 15, that that feels like a whole lot to me, like 15 of that thing. Yeah. Inflation has ruined the number 15 is a lot like, for I, me. I, I, That's I really right. don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about the currency either. I just assume that it goes from a little to a lot as they <laughs> offer more and more money and their faces get more wide eyed and astonished at the, the, the numbers. My favorite is when they go to the next room over to be like, we just gave him 25. Let's kill him and get it back when it's done. It's like immediately they're like, uh, let's not do that. I did like how many times he was able to get away with the trick of run in, 
kill a bunch of people, walk out and say, look what they did in there. <laughs> they <laughs> killed all these people. <laughs> Those jackasses. Yeah, obviously this movie is like extremely referenced by other stuff. We talked that we kind of, you re- mentioned it earlier, but we haven't, I don't think we've directly said. One of the first things he does is cut off a guy's arm when he shows up, which is directly referenced in the first Star Wars movie when uh, Ben Kenobi in um, Moss Eisley, in the Moss Eisley Cantina, shows up and cuts off a guy's arm with his lightsaber. It's like mm-hmm. the first thing you see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, George Lucas definitely cribbed a lot of Kurosawa for the Star Wars movies, especially the first one. I think Hidden Fortress opens with characters who are basically C-3PO and R2-D2 wandering into a problematic situation, which is basically how Star Wars starts, of course. Yeah, and so this is, you know, the, the Darth Vader helmet is obviously, or like the Darth Vader look in general, but especially the helmet is inspired by samurai helmets mm. and kind of related to that. Do you know why? The reason that samurai have this kind of ridiculous haircut where it's like shaved into a rectangle on their head. Okay, I kept it's, noticing the wacky haircuts. Yeah, yeah, that's because of, it has to do with the helmets they wear and like the padding and sweating and stuff like that. So it's, it's cut so it doesn't, uh, for a specific reason, around their helmets, which is why Yojimbo, who's like a not classy samurai, has a full head of hair, but then all the sort of super cultured ones have this more shaved look to them. It takes the mullet to a new level because you have a shaved front of your head, and then the back you have like a full-on long hairdo, and it's a very goofy-looking thing because sometimes it's not even a, a like steady shave. It'll be like square lines of like patches of hair. But anyways, it's, I guess that's the samurai way of doing things. Another thing I liked is that one of the key characters in the town is the coffin maker, which he, he kept showing up. First of all, it's kind of funny that like one of your booming businesses in town is the coffin maker. It tells you you're in a bad place. But then he ended up becoming like an important character a couple times, too. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, also one other thing about Yojimbo that I don't know if we called out specifically. The music is good. There's like a lot of music that happens. Oh, yeah. There's some Sanjuro has a cool leitmotif that comes up a bunch. Yeah, yeah there's a, the Kurosawa soundtracks for the samurai movies are all the, always these really like sort of percussive kind of reedy instruments going all over the place that really elevates the sort of uh, the tone of it, I think. All right. I, I was fond of that movie, and I, uh, I'm i looking forward to hearing what you guys are going to rate that. But shall we pivot to talking about Support Your Local Sheriff now? Yeah, do we want to talk about Sanjuro at all before? Or- well, I guess let's let's quickly mention Sanjuro. So, Brian, did you did you watch the second one or no? I did not watch Sanjuro. I did go a little further afield than I normally do with these. I watched Support Your Local Gunfighter. So that was my little bit of extra homework for the week. So I watched Sanjuro and then I got like a half hour into A Fistful of Dollars and I did not finish A Fistful of Dollars. I I also watched A Bug's Life, which is arguably a remake of Magnificent Seven. (laughs) Which is a remake of Seven Samurai, which is Kurosawa's other one. Right. So there's that. Yeah. So uh, Sanjuro is a sequel in that it follows... Sanjuro, the character, into his next adventure. And I would say that it is, first of all, it's kind of similar in that it's got a lot of the same stuff of like the basic archetype of the trickster 
coming up with conspiracies to trick the overall criminal enterprise that he's trying to take down. But I found it much more broadly satirical overall um, and also like a little more on the nose with its theme. So there's this woman in the beginning who basically says, for the first of all, she says, killing people is a bad habit, which I think is just a funny turn of phrase. Yeah, it's probably not the best habit to go around killing people. But her kind of iconic line there is, the best sword is kept in its sheath. And it's another thing where he's trying to take down these bad guys. And this one more more directly uh, spotlights, first of all, like the blurriness between heroism and villainy, because like our notion of who we think the hero is flops back and forth like three times, or I guess who the real villain is, I would say. And how blurry those are in like a state of lawlessness, basically. Um, and it takes even further some of the visual design elements of Yojimbo, where there's like lots of secret compartments and like doors and stuff. So it's also it's just funnier too. It's also good. I, I don't think it has quite the same uh, feel and punch to it that Yojimbo does. It's definitely like doing it again, doing it a little more directly and not quite as effectively. But it, it does have its own thing. And honestly, I could see returning to it and, and being even higher on it. Because I just I still found it very entertaining and very interesting. So what about you, Will? On yeah, Zero? I think if we're talking about which is a better movie, it's hard to say. I do think I enjoyed the experience of watching Sanjiro a little bit more. Uh, it's a little bit lighter in tone and it has a lot more things that counterbalance the darkness of the movie uh and he's got like a bumbling crew of samurai who always ruin his plans and then as you mentioned there's the the woman who's like serves as sort of the opposite of sanjiro but at the same time complements his very uh dark lifestyle it's also i think a little bit more straightforward and there's a lot there's it's the the, the conflict i think is easier to understand um at least for me it was when i watched it and yeah it's, it's funnier in my opinion and the action it has like they both have great endings, but the, the ending of Sanjiro is iconic. Uh, Brian, you mentioned the uh, sort of anime sword draw, cutting the rope. Sanjiro takes it further. It has the anime slashing sword, giant spray of blood. Oh, it's like movie. a comically huge spray of blood. He like turns on a water hose, blood spray. Yeah, so out. The, the, there was, that was actually a production mistake, and they accidentally did like five takes worth of blood in an instant. <laughs> so it, it's like a huge burst of blood. So I recommend it if you like Yojimbo. It's it's a little bit more of the same, but it's it's still got its own unique flavor to it. But I think let's pivot to Support Your Local Sheriff now. So Support Your Local Sheriff, very different. It's it's basically like a deadpan comedy the whole time. Like just characters quipping over nonstop, nonstop quipping. Definitely a comedic film that has like kind of your more typical Hollywood likable hero and then happily ever after so just talking through bits of it so basically um it first of all it opens with a funeral and this is probably the darkest bit of comedy in the movie because first of all they're doing like the frank grimes thing where they're talking about they're like disrespecting the guy at the funeral <laughs> they're like he came in two days ago we don't know anything about him and now he's dead. And then they're, they're getting ready to throw him in the grave. And they're like, there's gold in 
there? And they start like scrabbling to jump into the grave and pull out the gold. And, and stuff. The, the the guy who was eulogizing is like, well, get this dead guy out of here. Let's find the gold. <laughs> and they shove it off to the yeah. side. Which is really the only subversive element in the story. That There's also it kind of sets you up for something a little more subversive than you get. What I kept thinking was there is moments of edginess in this film. And I, I went ahead and looked. How long was this before Blazing Saddles? And it's actually only five years. Blazing Saddles was 1974. So this is like in this middle ground of how far do you go with your Western comedy? I would put it at like a pretty solid PG. Like you could probably play most of this on TBS. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how my grandfather came to know this movie was because it aired on cable in the afternoon when he was sitting there playing Scrabble with his sister. Right, but there's a few moments where it's like they talk about getting the shaft in relation to the the, the mine and like the the whorehouse is run by Madame Orr or something and so they talk about Orr's house and and uh, shoveling horse shit. It's Yeah, they keep almost saying that. Yeah. But I'd put all that in PG territory. Maybe like heavier PG. Right, it's, you're right. It's got it's got some. Uh, it's a, it's a comedy with that pushes the boundaries every now and again. It's suggestive, but not That's actually. Uh, it doesn't actually really commit to anything too dark. And then another thing that I found suggestive, I guess, and honestly kind of off-putting is the the female character who's the love interest. She keeps getting like caught with like the equivalent of her pants down not actually her pants down well sort of her pants like her dress catches on fire or she like is caught in the mud and so it looks like she's mud wrestling or like she's caught in her skivvies up in a tree and stuff and it's basically a chance for her to be humiliated in front of the the protagonist yeah i guess it's subverting sort of a classic heroine who's always caught in it's like she's always caught in the worst situations there's almost very little endearing about her because she's always on fire or covered in mud or acting like an idiot, uh, something like that. So, so the we we have the opening funeral and then it gets set up that this is kind of a gold rush town that ends up not being all that important in this one. But basically, as a result, uh, the, the Danby family takes over, and so the main Danby that we deal with is Joe Danby, who's played by Bruce Stern who is really, really funny in this movie. The, in general, the supporting cast in this movie made me laugh a whole lot. But the lead made me laugh, too. James, what's his James name? Garner. James Garner. Yeah. He's, he's funny, too. Um, although he does kind of the same thing over and over, which is he just got, like, the deadpan smirk. But it's a good trick. It's like, you know how you watch a Chevy Chase movie, you're getting a Chevy Chase thing. Here, this is, you're getting the, the James, James Garner thing. And he has for, a lot. An hour and a half. He has a lot of lines that are, like, it's like him not believing that people don't like aren't completely faithful. He's like, I already shot one hole in your room. Like all these things where he's like, yeah, of course I'm, I'm, I'm way better than you at everything. And I, the one that I always say is like, it was pretty good. Not that good. Yeah. It's like, all the, he's like really like, uh, he's so clearly above it all that it works out. And he's got a lot of really funny lines as a result of that. But so they take Joe Danby captive or they do soon because at this point, what, uh, Garner takes the sheriff job like on a whim and the first thing that he does is start cleaning up town and he, he shoves Danby into a cell because he shot a guy at the very start of the movie. 
Yeah, so what's his name? Jake McCullough. He shows up and he sees Joe Danby kill someone and has a, a couple of pretty good exchanges with him about remembering his name. He says, you calling me a liar? Well, now you heard every word I said and I didn't call you a liar. That's like the kind of response you get from him. He, he says, well, I ain't calling you a truther. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a different movie. Yeah. A different J. Oppenheimer, because that had Josh Peck in it. Yeah. He says, my name's Joe Danby, and you better remember it. And then the James Garner character, J Jake McCullough, I think yeah. it is, he says, oh, I'll remember it, Joe. That's about all I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life is go around remembering your name. Just like, I don't even know what the joke is there, but there's a lot of that kind of joke in this movie. It's like this whole sort of he's being accused. It's like, it's, it's like I never called you a liar. It's like, oh, I'm going to remember your name. That's all I'm going to do is remember your name. But the way he says it is is really funny. And... A lot of the deliveries, some of this is just, this is where we should point out that, uh, remind the listeners what we said earlier, which is that our dad said a lot of these lines over and over again. And he had a certain way of saying them that now when I go and watch, it just makes me more fond of the specific delivery. But one of my favorites that my dad said all the time is, and my dad didn't get it quite right. Uh, maybe, he, maybe this is one he got right. I can't remember. But he said, Jake McCullough says, Joe Danby, you make me feel tired all over, which is just a good turn. That of Hulk line he has is really good. He says, Joe, you make me feel tired all over when you talk like that. It's bad enough to have to kill a man, to have to listen to a whole bunch of stupid stuff before you do it. It's like he's it's just the way he, it's so funny. But then so Brian was saying, yeah, so Jake goes, he becomes he walks into the town council. He's like, all right, I'll be your sheriff. Then there's this funny back and forth about what happened to the last couple of sheriffs. He said they all the last three died. No, just two of them died. One of them left right away. He didn't have the right temperament for the job. But anyways, now he becomes sheriff. And of course, he just saw Joe Danby kill someone. So he's like, I'm going to go arrest Joe Danby. And so he goes and does it. And just every bit of this has got like some some comic punch to it. And he he arrests him and he brings him to the jail. But the big one of the big punchlines of this movie is the jail hasn't been fully built yet. It doesn't have bars. It's like the villains, they seem menacing when you first hear about them, but then they quickly turn out to just be idiots, very stupid. And James Garner is able to like just fast talk around them to get them to do whatever he wants or like do some stupid little trick to, to do whatever it is he's trying to get them to do. Yeah, the, the couple of things we haven't mentioned yet. Jake is deputy who gets hired at one point, and then he tells Jake to go and he's go tell Joe I'm gonna arrest him for murder. And then Jake's like, "What are you gonna do when he kills me?" He says, "Well, then I'll arrest him for two murders." <laughs> yeah, this guy he deputizes is played by an actor, uh, Elam, somebody Elam. Yeah, Jake. I think his name is or Jake. I think or it's John. Jack Elam. Jack Elam. Yeah. One of them. The either the character is Jack and the actor is Jake or vice versa. I think the character is Jake, so the actor must be Jack. But this guy has crazy Marty Feldman eyes. Yeah, really, really cross-eyed. Like, to the point, if you hold it, if you, like, stop it, you don't even believe... Like, it looks like makeup is how ridiculous. Right, well, rather than cross-eyed, it's wall-eyed. So the eyes are looking out, out either opposite sides, not towards each other. Okay, I see. I, I read his Wikipedia page, and apparently he got in a fist fight at a Boy Scout meeting, and it blinded <laughs> him in one eye. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Just another case of making the most of your physical peculiarities in show business. Right. 
Because it, it lends him a sort of uh, quirky energy. Like, because he's in both movies, he plays kind of the town drunk who also has a pluckishness about him, which fits with the wall eyed look pretty well. Um, he's got a bunch of good lines, too. He's like, Me and the sheriff don't take too kindly to what is it, rabble rousers with guns or show offs with guns. And he's waving around two guns while he <laughs> says it. The kind of things that the sheriff does is like the so now he's arrested one Danby. So the other Danby's come in and they're like, He comes in, he's going to shoot him. And the sheriff just sticks his finger in the gun, which just flusters the, the guys. Like, well, what do, you, what do you do? He stuck your finger in the gun. Is it still going to go off? And then in the moment of being flustered, the sheriff just opens the revolver and takes out the bullets, which is a trick he uses like 10 times. Yeah, he lies to Joe movies. about having taken the bullets out of his gun when he, one of the times he tries to escape from jail. Pa Danby is another great side character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lead Danby, the, the father, is played by character actor walter brennan who did a fair number of western roles usually playing an old man but what i know him from is a movie called the gnome mobile <laughs> which was a disney movie from the 60s which is like a pro-environmentalist save the redwoods because gnomes live there movie but i am fond of the gnome mobile because it's a movie over which i bonded with teddy of buzzed on movies was of course in high school he was the only other person i knew and vice versa who had seen the gnome mobile so at some point we may need to revisit get teddy on the show and and revisit walter brennan with coverage of the gnome mobile i bet he'd be down for it yeah yeah one bit about walter brennan's character pod danby that keeps coming up he's like the big evil gang leader but multiple times someone comments about how he's like kind-hearted at one point the the sheriff says he he seems to be like a lonely man. <laughs> and then uh, later on, his son describes him. He says he's got a heart as big as the whole, whole outdoors, but he doesn't have one brain in his head. <laughs> <laughs> but like Yojimbo, at some point, it transitions to a sort of montage of instead of things getting worse, it's things getting better. He's cleaning up the town in a, in a, a much less uh, violent way, although he does trip the horses at one point. It, it kind of enters like in the, the second half, a little after the halfway point, this it's almost like a more sitcom -y thing at this point, it's like a sketch comedy, because it's he just does a bunch of different things to stop the Danbys from breaking out Joe Danby. And um, that part slows the overall pace a little bit because you don't get quite as much of the quipping, which is really the, the special sauce for this movie. And yeah, so the love interest too, her name is Purdy, which is just a funny name. I like is, the name. Is it Prudy or Purdy? Oh, excuse me. It's Prudy. Short for Prudence, yes. Yeah. Prudy is a funny name, I thought. So uh, that early in the movie you have a great line from the mayor, and he says to uh, Jake McCullough, he says, uh, she takes a lot after her dear departed mother. And the sheriff says, Oh, she died? He says, No, she just departed. <laughs> And the mayor is played by a character, an actor from MASH. I think it's Colonel Potter on MASH. For some reason, there's a scene where they go, where the sheriff and Jake go gold hunting. And this is where you get what might be my favorite delivery, where the sheriff says, well, if we find gold, we'll split it 60-40. And Jake says, 60 for who and 40 for who? And, Jake, and then the sheriff says something else. It's like, well, now look, we're already arguing about who's going to get how much. Look what 60 gold does for to who and 40 for who. 
That always makes me laugh. It you always mean catches me up. 60 crying. for you and 40 for me. Well, that's <laughs> mighty generous of you, Jake. Thank you. <laughs> oh, another fun gag that I wanted to call out while I was thinking of it is eventually the prison bars do come in, and Joe Danby, who's just been standing in the cell without bars, without a wall, uh, and he ends up like holding the cement that they're using to put the bars in. Yeah, he helps them put the bars in. Uh, that's pretty funny. But it does end with a showdown with the Danbys and the the scheme here that the sheriff does is he ties Joe Danby to the cannon, this big cannon. And he's like, oh, no, don't blow up Joe Dan. Don't blow up Joe. Please, we'll stop. And then he unties Joe. The, the sheriff has won. And the sheriff says, it wasn't even lit. It was a pl- fake fuse. And then he lights the fuse and then he walks away. But the cannon does go off, so it wasn't a fake fuse. And it shoots a cannonball into Madame Orr's house. So the, the, brothel. the brothel. And it starts burning down, and there's, uh, like, the entire town council partially closed starts running out of the, the brothel, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, and it does a lot of, like, subverting the tropes in here. So at one point, he talks about, he's like, I'm going to leave town. And then Prudy's like, well, that's a great idea. And the town council's like, I heard he's going to leave town. And when I heard that, I... Thought that guy has a good head on his shoulders. (laughs) And also the town council meeting where Prudy tries to rally them is hilarious. (laughs) She tries to tie herself to something and then she yells death to tyrants. And then he's like, what'd she say? Uh, She's always saying death to something or other. Doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, but I like that exchange. You mentioned the one where they, where he's talking with Prudy and saying he's going to leave town because exactly what you'd expect here is she's like, well, no, why would you do that? Aren't you attached to me? Aren't you attached to the town? And she uses that tone of voice and she says, well, now that's really mature of you. Like, that's got to be the most mature thing I've ever heard. <laughs> He's like, wait, mature? So. Not cowardly? And then the movie ends with Jake, the deputy, breaking the fourth wall and describing the happily ever after, which is also exactly how support your local gunfighter ends, too. But in the, the ending is different. In Support Your Local Sheriff, he ends up being one of the most, uh, he's like, and I've become one of the most beloved characters in the Western folklore. But then at the end of Support Your Local Gunfighter, he says, and I've become a big star in Italian Westerns. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wasn't sure of is, what's is there like some background to Support Your Local Blank? And apparently this was like a, you would get like little signs of this that said, Support Your Local Police. It was like a 60s slogan. So like you could get a bumper sticker for it. And I haven't heard that one before. I mean, it makes sense. But yeah. One big thing that I believe we have not mentioned that is I would say a pivotal plot point is that the sheriff is on his way to Australia. Oh, he he keeps saying that. It's like, I'm just on my way to Australia. And he describes it as the last frontier. And they're like, I thought this was the frontier. (laughs) (laughs) There actually are Australian Western movies. Which makes sense because, you know, it's like the America after America. Vegemite Westerns, if uh, the Italian ones are spaghetti Westerns. That's funny. I don't know. There's one with John Hurt in it that I watched. I think it was called The Promise or something. That might not be the right title. But it was about, like, bushwhackers in Australia. Yeah, they've got their own uh, big desert area in Australia, so I'm sure they've got their own uh, Western lore. So now why don't we talk, we can just mention what happens in Support Your Local Gunfighter, 
it's like we said, it's pretty interesting. how it's pretty much the same thing. But one thing that really impressed me is, first of all, some of the it had more in the way of like gags, I guess. I, like, I don't know how I would describe it, but more things that felt like a little more polished and thought through. Like one that made me laugh is he broke the trigger fingers of one of the guys. And I don't think you actually shoot with your middle finger. But I think that's what they made it broken. So he has this cast on his middle fingers. He's walking around with his holding his middle fingers up because they're broken. And he also broke the wrong one first. He, he, he's like, ain't that guy left-handed? So he breaks the <laughs> right <laughs> finger finger. It's like, oh, damn it. I found that pretty gnarly to smash a hand with a rock and then have to smash the other one. Yeah, um, and it has the recurring bit about him gambling on roulette. And then the, the owner of the casino comes out and he's like he takes a shot and he says spin it it's like the same beat three times in a oh row, yeah you know? yeah i did that's another thing is that the the sheriff character and support your local sheriff doesn't really have much of a way of personality other than the australia thing he's just there to make quips but he actually kind of has an arc in support your local gunfighter yeah, he's got his humiliating tattoo oh, yeah. on his chest. <laughs> he he keeps saying he has to go see a doctor throughout the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then he finally, you think his condition is going to be like some degenerative disease or something. But he's got this big, ugly tattoo on his chest. Says, says, I love Goldie. I love Goldie, who is the <laughs> woman that he like hops off a train to escape. Oh, also in the production aspect, there's a real steam train in the second one. I don't think there's that in the first one. Also, much more color in the color design because it's a slightly more developed town that they're in. The town is also called Purgatory, um, which is interesting. A little on the nose, but yeah. And the, the the female lead is Patience, and they mind that for a little bit. They said, be patient, Patience, and stuff like that. Um, they do talk about getting the shaft in uh, support your local gunfighter as well. I thought it was interesting how in Gunfighter... There's a lot of them thinking that he's this, like, legendary figure and, you know, cases of mistaken identity and treating him with deference because they think he's this one guy, which I've seen a few stories like that. One we talked about not that long ago was the court jester. So because we're on the subject of, like, branching tendrils and things that are like other things, I was thinking all these other movies that use similar story beats, but somebody coming into a community, an established community that's kind of an unknown quantity, but people think they know what he's about and what he's going to do. And they all kind of have conflicting desires of him and expectations of him is court jestery or like there's a book, a Russian book called the inspector general. Have, have you guys read or watched any adaptations of the inspector general? I haven't. So that's kind of a satire on like, late imperial russia where there's like too much bureaucracy and just too many people who have like bureaucratic jobs just to have a job and and like everybody's got a inflated sense of self-importance but in that story it's like there's a court like a noble court and there's this inspector coming from the higher-ups like he works for the czar or something and he's coming to inspect these local nobles and so they've all got to be on their best behavior and, like, hide their corruption. But the whole thing is not what it seems because he's just this con man who's posing as the government inspector. And he's, like, got them all running around and twisted around his finger trying to give the best impression on this guy who is really nobody. 
and like by the end like all the seams have come undone and like their corruption lies exposed and the guy leaves town again and then the news that comes out is wait a minute guys the real inspector is here yeah there you go <laughs> and that's like the last end. page of the book wow I, I liked what support your local gunfighter did with it because first of all he got mistaken for it but then he changed the story he's like oh no i, I don't know if his name is jake in this one too i don't remember the the guy who's the equivalent of the jake the same actor who's also the assistant type um they're like no wait you're actually gonna be the one who's the the legendary gunfighter now with the name swifty williams or something Swift, like Swift that willie or something yeah and then it turns out the thing that's distinctive about swift willie is he's got a really shiny bald head and so, of course, he shows up towards the end and he dramatically takes off his hat and it's completely bald and shiny on top. Yeah, and the way he dies, he accidentally shoots himself is how he loses the uh, final duel. It even has the same, a similar final beat where they accidentally blow up a building to comedic effect, except in this case, the whole town is constantly hunting for a... The mother load, right? The mother load, they call it, the big vein of gold. And... I, it's, I don't think it's the brothel. I think it's like the tavern they shoot it in. And they run out. They're like, we found the mother load. And so that was the second Support Your Local movie. Now, apparently, the guy who wrote the second one was like one of the key voices in the series. And the series, it wasn't making a lot of money, but somehow people have seen it since. I wish they I, they could have done a couple more of these. I think I, I would. I think there was some juice there because I felt like the second one had a little more polish and thought into it than the first one. That makes me think you're not running out of ideas. You're just building up ahead of steam. But I don't know. I guess two parody westerns starring the same cast with similar premises is probably enough. Well, they could have done a trilogy like the the uh, Man oh, with No yeah. Name trilogy. That's true. Support your local. What would you call it at that point? Cowboy? Uh, yeah, there you go. Support your local cowboy. Maybe that's what we'll make our third movie. Yeah. Our, our support your local cowboy movie. That, I think, was the main movies we wanted to talk about. So we hit the two the two key texts of the night were Yojimbo and Support Your Local Sheriff. We also talked about the sequel and quasi-sequel to each. But what it, we talked about tendrils. What are some of the other things that... You, if you were to expand this viewing experience further, what would you include? I mean, the most obvious is the the Man with No Name trilogy, of which I've seen. I recently saw all three, and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is obviously an all time classic. But yeah, what do you think? Gavin on our our Discord had some thoughts. He said, "Watch the entire Dollars trilogy and the book Red Harvest, which is the hard boiled detective novel that I said influenced." Yojimbo. But then he said, also watch Return of the Jedi because the working title was Blue Harvest. And then I suppose at that point you could go to the entire Star Wars trilogy, which not even trilogy at this point, like 11 movies or whatever it is. Right. Being that they're Kurosawa tributes. I think there's an avant-garde Western called The Good, the Bad and the Weird, which mm. uh, maybe we could tie into it as well. Brian, you said it's like kind of like Spy Kids where We've. I ended up watching what was it like ten different uh, Robert Rodriguez movies for that episode. Yeah, and at a certain point, you just have to watch everything by Quentin Tarantino too. Right, because there's like a crossover in one of the movies of those two uh, between a Tarantino and a Rodriguez. So at that point, 
And then, of course, Tarantino connects all of his movies, so you have to watch all the Tarantino movies. Yeah, you, you can get into similar territory here. And then I think you can also watch Seven Samurai as another Samurai Kurosawa, and then The Magnificent Seven, and as Brian did, A Bug's Life as well, just to tie <laughs> everything together. And I just happened to watch that one because Disney Plus posted, like, an insect documentary, and, like, there was a plug at the start also, you should watch Bugs Life. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I will. <laughs> Disney Plus said it. Well, so you know, it, it must be done. So I, I write books. That's one thing that I do. And one of the next books I'm going to write is a fantasy novel heavily inspired by the archetype of Yojimbo slash A Fistful of Dollars, where it's a, a, a wizard going into town and sort of upending a place that is full of corruption. Uh, Yojimba, we didn't really mention the soundtrack, but the sort of like mouth banjo kind of bouncy soundtrack that both Gunfighter and uh, uh, Sheriff have also I think adds to it. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, I, mean, I could go on about the script in Support Your Local Sheriff and just so quote, quote things at you, but it's, I think it's really worth watching and listening to it because it's quite funny. And uh, Gunfighter I have a little bit less exposure to, but I, I do think the script script is pretty snappy there as well so yeah so i think i'm ready to rate these is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good which is an eight out of eight so why don't we start with yojimbo uh, brian why don't you go first is yojimbo good okay so yojimbo this is a little bit of a mixed bag for me the photography is excellent. The way everything is lit and the black and white cinematography and just the setup of all the shots, really awesome. Anytime that they're like looking through their paper house into somebody else's paper house, it's like you get the deep focus. It's like Citizen Kane times three. Just everything is artfully laid out and you always see just what they want you to see. I got a little lost at points in the plot, and I'm sure some of that is is things lost in translation, but also there's just a whole slew of characters and a lot of things going on, but I think I got it. So for me, it edges just, I think, into seven, just because the craft is so there visually. And, I mean, the hero saves the day, although there is a bit of gray area because he leaves the wreckage behind him and the other people the few who are left have to pick up the pieces but i got into it what about you guys yeah this one i'm in a pretty similar place um i think the formal elements if you're judging them like the cinematography the sound uh track the um the sort of the scene shot composition are like fantastic and individually i would probably rate those near perfectly but it does, I think, come together because of some of the sort of slowness of the first half of the film and a little bit of the confusion when, uh, if you're not paying like really close attention because of name overlap, and a lot of people get brought up and then not talked about for 30 minutes and then brought up again, and then all of a sudden this gun guy shows up halfway through the movie and you're like, oh yeah, he's another one of the brothers. There's a lot of things that sort of uh, pull me out a little bit from the um, narrative thrust of the film. Um, and so as a result of that, I think... I'm a little bit torn here. I'm going to go... 
I think I'll land right there with you and give it a, a low seven. I think it barely edges into seven as well, just because I think I got more out of it. This I, I've watched it twice now, and I think I got a little bit more out of it the second time, just because I knew what was going on be, uh, better. And as a result of that, I was able to more appreciate uh, the formal elements rather than focusing on trying to figure out just what the hell is going on around there. Plus, I think it has like an all-timer of an ending where with, with uh, Sanjiro against the uh, entire family where he just mercilessly cuts down everybody before being like well the town's cleaned up goodbye and yeah i think i think it uh, there's a lot to love about it even if i did get a little bit confused at points so yeah seven for me what about you dan well first i want to shout out jim md who's a guy on our discord he found us when we talked about the train a movie that brian and i both really liked he sought us out found our discord he, he pops up in our Discord, tells us what movies he's liking and stuff. So uh, I saw on Letterboxd, he had this movie rated at five stars, and I asked him what he liked about it, and this is what he said. Although it's not the one I usually assert is his all-time best, it's a personal favorite and the Kurosawa film I've watched the most for a few reasons. It's a black comedy, and I'm always a sucker for a good one. It's high entertainment with stress on the entertainment for my taste. It's like a Western made from the novel Red Harvest, then transposed to a samurai setting. It's not as long as some of his other great films, like Seven Samurai and Ran, which is something that we brought up too. The cinematography is probably the best of all of his films, and the score and Sanjuro's leitmotif are amazing. And of course, it inspired Leone's slash Clint's Man With No Name. So, Jim, thanks for finding us. And listeners, come find us on the Discord too, thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. I'm going to give this one a seven with the possibility of it turning into an eight the next time I watch it, like a high-end seven for me, because A, it's really well, like everything about the craft, phenomenal, what you guys have said. And yeah, I had to watch it with the Wikipedia summary next to me because I was having trouble keeping up with who was on what side, but I also kind of understood that it didn't really matter. Like I didn't make place the film noir connection um the the motion of the plot being part of the purpose but i can definitely see see that and i was definitely getting the vibe that it, it was more just about the sheer chaos in the city than any specific plot that we were supposed to follow but just a really thoughtful and kind of interesting and dark and funny it's like dramatic but it's also it makes you laugh a lot and it, it's got this edge to it just a, a terrific film that I can see why it's stuck with people. It doesn't feel quite as like incisive or art filmy as, I don't know, I imagine like Ran feeling or Ikiru or something like that. Um, it's, it's a great one. So high seven for me on Yojimbo. Let's move on to Support Your Local Sheriff. So is Support Your Local Sheriff good, Brian? This one for me is very squarely good. I'm going to give it a five out of eight. I did find it pretty charming and I was chuckling pretty regularly. Overall, it leaves a positive taste. I looked this up on Letterboxd and one of the, not the top reviews, but the most recent reviews was, this is a pleasant Western comedy. <laughs> and it was reviewed by Movie Guy. <laughs> movie guy has spoken <laughs> that's a pretty authoritative letterbox review if you ask me where are you at so yeah for me it's impossible i think to separate this one from my history with it as it was 
my grandfather's and later my father's favorite movie. And obviously a lot of the a lot of my affection for it comes from the fact that it reminds me so heavily of him. Um, plus, I mean, it's not like it's a slouch of a film by itself. I think it's the script is really sharp and it's a lot of the uh, the acting is great for what it is. It's not like, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily Oscar worthy performances, but like the delivery is great. It's really got a snappy script. It's good slapstick comedy with things blowing up and people rolling around in the mud and brawls and all kinds of ridiculousness with uh, the way everything um, is carried out. So I like it. And my brain says I probably should not give it an eight, but my heart and my uh, the amount of times I've laughed at this film says I will give it an eight. I'm going to call this one a masterpiece. And obviously, I think that is heavily influenced by my fondness, my personal fondness for this film. But you know what? I like the movie a lot, and I think it's great. And if I'm turning on a feel-good comedy for me, there's not going to be few, or there's not going to be many movies that uh, come on top of support your local sheriff. An all-time classic for me. So yeah, eight out of eight. Tour to good. There you go. Loved it to get an eight on the pod. I'm going to give this one a very good, a six out of eight. Um, I probably like objectively would have it around a five. It has a lot of traits of a movie that I give a five, but combination of my sentimental value. And I just watched it for the second time in like four months or something. And I laughed really hard this time too. In fact, I might've laughed even harder this time than I did the first time. There's just, it's very dense with little quips that are, are good. It actually, I was thinking of kiss, kiss, bang, bang, Brian, where like, it almost happens too fast the way that they go back and forth with each other with these these little lines. And that combined with my nostalgia for it and 60 for who, 40 for who, always making me laugh. And uh, She got her hair caught in the ice cream freezer. <laughs> I think that line made me laugh. Just the delivery of that line made me laugh more than any other when I was watching it today. Uh, I'm going to give this a, a very good which is probably where I landed at the last time I watched it, but I'm feeling even a little higher on it. It's definitely one I, I plan to watch again at some point because clearly it stands up to multiple views for me. So I feel pretty confident in giving it at least a six on that one. So very good for me on Support Your Local Sheriff. Are there any others that we want to toss some ratings out there onto? You, I guess all three of us watch Gunfighter, right? I don't know if we want to make this canonical, but let's go ahead and do it. So Support Your Local Gunfighter, the second Support Your Local film. Brian, where, where do you have this one? So for me, it's just a smidge below Sheriff because I can't wrap my head around just deciding to do it again. <laughs> like, it's not that the movie is worse, but how is that the impulse? It's just, you know, 18 months later, you're like, okay, well, we're all still here. We're all still around. This is what we know. And we'll call it the same damn thing. <laughs> like, what? It's just such an oddity to me. But it it is actually a little more polished. It's a little darker. Like, the gunfighter character is a little more morally ambiguous than the sheriff. So I, I thought this was good, too. I'm going to give it a five. Um, I think I'm right there with you with this one. Obviously, my fondness. I This was maybe the second time I've seen Support Your Local Gunfighter. And the first time I saw it was a long time ago that I'm not even sure I actually watched it all the way through. But um, I think the script is similarly snappy and the movie has a lot of great slapstick comedy. I do think it, for some reason, I don't know if this is just my fondness, but it feels like it's got a little bit less 
uh, heart or lightness to it than Support Your Local Sheriff, which I think is for comedies that really get it right for me. If I'm thinking of a pure comedy, I think that it's almost like an airier feeling. It, it, it's, uh, it becomes easier to watch if there's a lightness to it, which I think Support Your Local Sheriff has. It's a lot more kind-hearted, I think. Um, and it results in only, uh, in the final showdown, instead of slaughtering everybody, only one guy gets killed. And that's, it comes with a quip that Prudy only knows how to shoot to kill. So, um, yeah, so I think I'm going to sit there with you. Yeah, we'll call it a five, I think. So good. And if if I were being objective about Sheriff, it would probably land closer here, but I can't be, and so I won't be. But yeah, so support your local gunfighter, I'll give it a five. I'm right there with you guys for pretty much the same reasons. In some ways, it's got more meat on the bones, but it just doesn't ring as quite so special to me. And uh, a lot of things I liked about it, though, like there's some really good gag construction and buildup. Also, the actress who plays Prudy is named Joan Hackett, which sounds like a name. You're like, oh, I know who that is. But really, I didn't know her from anything else. I think it just sounds like, I don't know, maybe I was thinking of Joan Crawford or something like that. Like, it sounds like the name of someone, but I I hadn't actually seen anything else uh, with her. And I thought she was fine. But in Support Your Local Gunfighter, the similar character, Patience, she's the brunette. She causes trouble in town. And I think she has like a nickname, the Sidewinder in that, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, she's played by Suzanne Plachette, and she kind of knocked my socks off. She's beautiful, and also she just got kind of like a sparkle in chemistry that I thought was terrific. Yeah, she's really funny. She tries to kill every guy. He says, does your mother know out you're out this late? So she tries to shoot him or something like that. And she did a lot of stuff. Um, one movie I'm familiar with that she's in is The Ugly Dachshund, which was a, a Disney movie from the 60s. Are we going to do a double a, a pairing of the, what was it, the No-Mobile? The No-Mobile and, and The Ugly Dachshund. There's a very good chance. But you know who else was in The Ugly Dachshund was the guy who played the doctor. It's come up in a previous Goods episode because, oh, Charlie Ruggle was a character actor who played the doctor and actually you know what it wasn't talking to you it was talking to somebody else but i watched (laughs) bringing up baby the screwball comedy and that movie has a very young charlie ruggle in it as one of the characters and then later he was the doctor in the ugly dachshund so now we also would have to watch the ugly dachshund and uh bringing up baby Baby (laughs) as part of the yojimbo universe Did you give your rating? No, I didn't. So my, my rating is also good. I, I, I was entertained and not quite as special. And then you two guys who watch Sanjuro, you want to throw a rating on that? Sure. Um, oh, one more one more thing on... Um, I, I don't know if Bruce Dern is also in Support Your Local Gunfighter, but I just watched all of the Alexander Payne movies, including Nebraska, which has an old Bruce Dern in it. This is the guy who plays Joe Danby. And he's really, really good in Nebraska, which I think is overall about around a five, not Payne's best movie. But um, it was kind of wild seeing him young here after I had just seen him old in Nebraska. But Oh, if we're adding more movies onto the Yojimbo uh, canon, the guy <laughs> who plays the villain, like the gun villain in Yojimbo and also the the villain in, in Sanjuro is... He starred in the highest rated narrative movie on Letterboxd which is Harakiri, 
and also starred in the three-part like eight or it's like 12-hour movie the human series condition? the human condition so yeah wow so add those movies onto your uh Yojimbo, uh, yeah so there you go and then Sanjiro, do you want to do Sanjiro real quickly? Yeah, yeah. Sanjiro, I, I probably enjoyed it more than Yojimbo. I, I don't know if I'm going to call it a better movie, but uh, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more. It's a little bit lighter. I think it's funnier. I'm going to give it a 7, exceptionally good, similar to what I gave Yojimbo, but a little bit more confident there. What do you think, Dan? And I would give Sanjiro a very good, probably, because it's got that Kurosawa construction to it, and I think it even does more with the visuals to it. It doesn't have quite the same like iconography to it, but the way that it's got like these people just keep popping up in interesting places, like a, a window flies open or a door flies open and there's people who you didn't know were there who were listening in and stuff. It does a lot of cool stuff with that and, and like the depth of focus stuff and still the same black and white. And it's anamorphic widescreen, like the really widescreen, like I think it's 2.35 by against one if you start talking to cinephiles and hanging out in cinephile spheres they're like weirdly obsessed with aspect ratio cinephiles freaking love talking about aspect ratio they will talk to you all day about which ones are good and which ones are bad and which ones should be used for this one and that one and i don't quite get it i gotta say maybe i'm not quite as much of a visual thinker as these people are maybe like that's when you've really earned your credentials as a cinephile is when you can say i can't believe they shot that in 2.351 it should have been 2.191. It's like, okay, well, maybe. Yeah, 1.78. Yeah, don't call it CinemaScope if it's not CinemaScope. I just watched a uh, an interesting YouTube video. It was about how the 90s uh, movie Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which released in theaters, was originally actually made for 4x3 for television. But then halfway through, one of the like higher-ups at the TV, at the production company came and was like, oh, let's put this one in theaters. So the original, it was actually cropped for theaters, where they mm -hmm. made it widescreen for theaters, even though it was uh, originally made for 4x3 for television. So it's like a reverse of what you normally I, get, where it's uh, pan and scan or whatever they call it. Well, since we're talking about aspect ratios, that actually was pretty common in the uh, early 2000s when TVs hadn't fully cut over to widescreen, is they would actually shoot it thinking of the DVD sales that would be on four by three screens because that was actually getting as much money as getting people in the theaters. And then when they displayed it in theaters, they matted the top and the bottom, which is the opposite of what you think of. Like normally you think this is modified for our home video. Mm -hmm. So like the original was shot for theaters and then they would pan and scan or something like that. But that changed early in the DVD revolution, but then everybody started getting widescreen TVs and they just, Everything was widescreen. And now, then. yeah, for like The Simpsons on Disney Plus, they crop the they crop it for widescreen. But uh, Saltburn did the four by three, uh, like intentionally. It kind of feels like a soap opera, and it like makes the space feel much more vertical. That was the time I actually noticed the aspect ratio. I was like, okay, I, I did because that that feels very different than widescreen. The weird horror movie that was recent, where it's like just night in a house. Oh, um, what's that called? Skidamarink. Uh, it's it's a play. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Was that one in four by three? I don't even remember. It like washed off my brain. Um, I don't remember either. I watched it on my laptop, which I, I don't notice it quite as much. Anyway, it would have been a good one to do that if it did or didn't. Yeah. Not no, it says it's widescreen. Okay, fair enough. I mean, it could be wrong, but what I quickly Googled. 
Yeah, we we saw Oppenheimer at the Udvar Hazy IMAX, and that one's like a, basically a square. It's so. What's the aspect? Oh uh, well, IMAX is crazy. Yeah, it's like one point six four, right? It's like it's like really low, isn't it? So true IMAX is one point four three to one. Watered down IMAX is one point nine to one, and standard is two point four to one on Oppenheimer. We've been uh, diverging here. Did I give my final rating? I think I did. I said, said very good. Very good. I think. So that wraps up our guest episode. That wraps up our violent ends. I think this was like our fifth violent ends or sixth or something like that. We didn't even really talk about the end of the movie, considering how like support your local sheriff. The violent oh, yeah. end is in. It's a non-violent end yeah. for support your local sheriff because he ends up staying in town. Yeah, that's the twist. Not only that, he stays in town, and in the big shootout, only like one guy dies. Whereas right. in the the showdown in Yojimbo, everybody dies. So that was that was why I was thinking of the violent ends initially. Although we kind of spiraled off from there for the other comparisons. We finally, but... an hour and a half into recording, revealed what the violent <laughs> ends were. There we go, folks. <laughs> we did it. All right, Brian. Well, Will, thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks as always, and listeners, thank you. Join us again. Much love, my friends. Oh.